Welcome to the Liberation Pedagogy Podcast. This is a place where radical ideas and methods are discussed in the quest towards freedom making. It is a space to dialogue, share, and learn about revolutionary politics, political struggles, radical solidarities, cultural resistance, healing justice, and is a crossing to unearth legacies of resistance pedagogies, global radicalism, and internationalism. I'm your host, Chani Desai, and if you like this episode, please subscribe. Thanks for listening to the Liberation Pedagogy podcast in our series on uprisings and pedagogies of rebellion. Today, our guest is David Stovall. Uh, David Stovall is professor of African-American studies and criminology, law, and justice at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The scholarship investigates three areas, critical race theory, the relationship between housing and education, and the intersection of race, place, and school. In the attempt to bring theory to action, he works with community organizations and schools to address issues of equity, justice, and abolishing the school-to-prison nexus. His work led him to become a member of the design team for the Greater Lawndale Little Village School for Social Justice, which opened in the fall of 2005 in Chicago. Furthering his work with communities, students, and teachers, his work manifests itself in his involvement with the People's Education Movement a collection of classroom teachers, community members, students, and university professors in Chicago, Los Angeles, and San Francisco Bay Area who engage in collaborative community projects centered in creating relevant curriculum. In addition to being a professor at UIC, Dave has also volunteered as a social justice, social uh, studies teacher at the Greater Lawndale Little Village School for Social Justice from 2005 to 2018. Um, I just want to, you know, give a huge thank you to Dave for being here with us today. Yeah, thanks. Thanks again so much for having me. Truly appreciate it. So I want to begin by talking about this horrifying yet exciting moment we're presently in uh, with the mass uprisings and rebellions happening in the U.S. against anti-Black racism and specifically the police murders and lynching of Black life in the wake of the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Aubrey. Tony McDade and the list goes on. Uh, many activists and scholars have described uh, that the current uprisings are perhaps different from the past, you know, be it the era of the 60s during the civil rights movement, or even, you know, going back to 2014 with the, in the wake of Trayvon Martin's murder. Um, so uh, this moment has been described as, you know, different um, from the past and also different in the sense of uh, imagining political possibilities that are that are that are uh, on the horizon, and so I'm just curious, Dave, what do you think about the current rebellions, um, and what or how might they be different from what you've witnessed in the past? Yeah, I think what is first, I think it's important to state that they are similar in terms of people who have decided that the current conditions are intolerable. Mm. I think where they May, there may be some difference here. One is the way it was it mobilized, right, in terms of having this kind of celluloid imagery around Black death, right? So when we think about 92 in Los Angeles with Rodney King, you have that kind of celluloid imagery of Rodney King being accosted by the police. But in this space, we're actually watching someone die, right? And I think it's important, you know, and when people think about the culmination of events, I mean, Breonna Taylor was killed in March. 
We didn't hear about it until a month and a half later. Armand Arbery was killed in February. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't, we didn't hear it until April. I think those, those things actually amp it up. I think the thing that actually makes this moment different mm-hmm. is that people are saying reforms will not work. Mm-hmm. That what we're really talking about is pushing towards abolition. Mm-hmm. And I think, that's a, I think that to me is the most different about the struggles in terms of the historical uh, arc and meaning. Like this is a time where people are saying, we will not, reforms are intolerable. We will not, they are insufferable. We will not go with them. This is the moment where we need to talk about literally shifting and getting rid of things that we know have historically resulted in a dehumanization uh, of black people and black bodies. So I think that, that to me is the most defining difference. Mm. And, and actually, so on that point, you know, um, do you think that it's because social movements have actively tried and tested different strategies to actually reform it and see, and, and have seen the failures of it that now people are at this moment where it's like, nah, not, this is not going to work because in 2014 or in the Obama years, you know, activists were brought to the White House to engage in reformist politics or reformist agendas to try to reform the police or agendas uh, around criminal justice. And so I'm just wondering, do you think that also these are uh, learnings from, from social movements where activists have tried and tested this in good faith and because of the failures of reforms, you know, we're in this moment, like. Yes, yes, without question. I mean, like I said, you, you've seen reforms fail in all these instances, right? And this goes back, I mean, this actually goes back to uh, FDR in the United States mm-hmm. in the late 30s, right? You know, Mary McLeod Bethune, Eleanor Roosevelt actually bringing folks to the White House to discuss some issues and concerns, particularly around, at that time, housing, right? So now, if we kind of think about that historical arc, I mean, Lyndon Bang Johnson, John F. Kennedy, you know, people actually interacting with folks and reforms like the Civil Rights Act of 1964, you know, reforms like the 13th Amendment, right? So slavery is only abolished when it's not in the situation of punishment for a crime, right? Mm -hmm. So I think these, I think now this was that moment where everything had added up and people began to say, wait, look, we actually went, we actually went to authority less than four years ago Mm -hmm. about these about these instances and we got lip service but we didn't get our needs met and i think this moment is and a very it's a very narrow moment in terms of time to push these understandings through but i think that is now allowed folks to say look the historical arc has shown us time and time again that these reforms are just uh not only insufferable but they aren't even intended to work. Right. So now we have to push a different level to say, Here's, here are the demands in a very different way. Because I, I think to your point, what makes it different is then people are saying, no, we have systems that do not need to exist, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's, a, that's very different, right? Because the, the, 
age-old liberalist ideology was mm. bad people, good systems. Right, right, right. right, right. Well, now people are saying, no, no, we're talking about bad systems, yeah. right? And that, that, I think that's a major difference in terms of kind of pushing folks forward. Completely. So actually this, you know, kind of segues to my next question around, you know, the, the difference between... Um, uh, uh, defunding and abolition, you know, as, as, uh, um, as a lot of, uh, analysis is out right now around abolition, you know, in the, in the mainstream, there are calls to defund the police. There are also calls, uh, around abolition. And, and, and for some, there's a lot of clarity, like a lot of people who've been doing work around, um, abolitionist circles or in abolitionist movements have the understanding of the differences, but there's also a lot of confusion. Like what does defunding mean? What does abolition mean? Are mm -hmm. they connected? Are they related? Are they different? Are they different right. asks? And so I'm curious if you could just outline from your understanding how, okay. what you see the difference is between uh, maybe say defunding the police or the abolition of police. I think there's a, there's a kind of tacit agreement in many abolitionist communities about what is referred to as a non-reformist reform, mm -hmm. right? And so uh, I would encourage your listeners to check out uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore's interview on The Intercept, right? It's a mm -hmm. really good piece where she kind of breaks things down. But I think, and non-reformist reforms comes from actually a labor philosopher by the name of Andre Gortz. Mm -hmm. And Gortz talks about these kind of situations that you can engage in the meantime mm -hmm. while also working towards your goal. So to your question, defunding is the non-reformist reform mm -hmm. that now pushes us towards abolition, right. right? And when we talk about defunding, what we're really talking about in terms of budget is a reappropriation of budget, mm -hmm. right? So it's this mm -hmm. idea of, so I'll give folks an example in terms of where I'm in Chicago. Chicago, has the Chicago public school system, which is called Chicago Public Schools. Mm -hmm. Chicago Public Schools has a contract with the Chicago Police Department, right? right? And that contract is for $33.3 million. So if we, we now in Chicago have all of these schools that have been historically disinvested, right? Mm -hmm. They've been resources removed from those schools. So what if we took that $33.3 million mm -hmm. and put it into things that young folks have stated that they need? Right. Counselors, wraparound services, mm -hmm. athletics, art programs, right? So if we think about that defunding, what we're actually talking about is this reappropriation. Mm -hmm. When we talk about abolition, we're actually talking about eliminating the conditions that get folks in situations where they are dehumanized, marginalized, and isolated. So now abolition is saying, we have to ask a question of how we get here. Mm -hmm. And when we ask the question of how we get here, what things need to be getting rid of that actually got us here, right? right. So if we're talking about things like lack of access to healthcare, mm -hmm. lack of quality education, lack of housing, lack of employment, lack of proper food delivery and food access, mm -hmm. right? So these things, now a politic of abolition says, here are the things that we need. Here are the things that we don't need. Right. So in your broader question around uh, defunding to abolition, we're now talking about 
here is the pathway mm. to get to those things that we actually don't need. I think what's really interesting about also this is um, the fact that, you know, uh, it shows so clearly, you know, the relationship between race and capitalism, right? And policing and capitalism. I think that oftentimes uh, when there's a flattened understanding that it's, it's, um, it's solely just racism, we forget to see that mm-hmm. racism is also based on capitalism, right? Or race, race yeah. capitalism is necessary uh, for racism and vice versa. And so in, 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 in that example that you provided, what is also very clear is that the abolitionist agenda is also dealing uh, with thinking through the capitalist realities that disproportionately then marginalize and um, harm Black communities mm-hmm. in particular. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, just something quick, and I thank you so much for mentioning that because I think this current moment allows us to understand that we, we are existing under three pandemics, mm. right? So we have the global health pandemic of COVID. Mm-hmm. We also have the pandemics of white supremacy and the pandemics of racism, mm-hmm. right? I mean, say the pandemics of capitalism, mm-hmm. right? So if we think about COVID, capitalism, white supremacy as three pandemics, right? These are problems that are stretched across country, region, nation, world that now prevent us from act, enacting any type of justice condition. So I think that's really important in terms of thinking about this moment in terms of like not the panic of COVID, but to really understand what it has meant to be in long-term precarity, right? Mm, mm, exactly, no, 100%. Um, so speaking of defunding, as you know, calls to defund police um, in the US continues, another call has gained traction as well, which is the removal of police officers from schools. Um, we've seen several districts around the country that have either ties, uh, that have either broken ties or are trying to sever ties with police and law enforcement. An example is the Minneapolis School Board that unanimously recently voted to terminate its contract with the Minneapolis Police Department. You have the Seattle Public School that has temporarily cut ties with that police department, um, there, there are different efforts being made elsewhere. And I know that one aspect of your work focuses on abolish, uh, uh, abolishing the school to prison nexus. So I'm just also thinking about or wondering about how do you think that these uprisings could possibly work towards abolishing the school to prison nexus? And, and what are the possibilities perhaps in the context you work in? And- and I think to your point, there's this very narrow window mm. to enact on these spaces, right? Because now that there's attention on it, right. now to what extent do people move on it to actually address a broader concern? And I think the broader pers- concern is in many communities, we're no longer talking about school, a disinvested, underfunded school being the pathway to prison. Mm. We're mm. now talking about a school having the exact same logics of a prison, right? Right. The same rules, the same regulations, the same punishments, right? So this, so now what there's the opportunity to do is to rethink schooling and now center education because schooling is ordering compliance, right? I'm making this difference between schooling and education, right? Where schooling is just this ordering compliance and us being rewarded for our capacity to regurgitate whiteness, Mm. where education 
is going to ask questions of that institution and whether or not that institution needs to exist, right? So what is a lot of times that's happened in schools mm. is that we've been taught to suffer through our dehumanization, right? right? You know, whether it be want, being winded down, going through a metal detector, wearing uniforms, walking on straight lines, being punished if you have on the wrong pair of shoes or belts. I mean, it's this exact same logics of prison, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. if we're talking about now ending that logic, knowing that school can also be a dehumanizing place, then some of the things that we need to think about in abolishing that school prison nexus is now saying, well, what does it mean to get rid of high stakes standardized tests? Mm -hmm. Right. That are rooted in eugenics and white supremacy. Yes. Right. And are really rooted in the the perception that black, Latinx, Southeast Asian students, indigenous students are unable to actually engage the rules and values of whiteness. Right. Mm -hmm. What would it mean to get rid of grades? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. that actually only just sort us, right? They just sort students in particular groupings. We know that grades or nor tests have any marking on a student's capacity to learn, right? So now we talk about rethinking these things mm. in addition to getting police out of schools. Mm. We have a real opportunity to rethink what has actually been a site of dehumanization, right? So the scholar Michael Dumas always talks about, you know, in many instances, school has been a site of black suffering. Mm -hmm. So now if we are to reverse this suffering, now what are we willing to do within an abolitionist framework? And I think mm -hmm. those things like elimination of grades, elimination of high stakes testing, getting police out of school, get us away from the punitive measure, measures that actually lock us into that school prison nexus, right? So school is no longer the, the thing that leads us to prison. Mm -hmm. Depending on where we are, the right. school is the prison, exactly. right? So I think those things will now allow us to rethink an abolition politics. Do you, in your, in your, all of your years of organizing and your, uh, you know, also your scholarly work, are they inspiring examples in which you've seen um, you know, this work where either police have been removed and education or schooling has been rethought. Um, yeah, I'm just kind of curious around any kind of, yeah, examples that you think have either worked or were leading to that change or were inspiring. Yeah, two examples in particular. One comes out of Oakland, California, and this mm. happened in the late 90s mm. where there was a, a very forward thinking high school principal who said, all right, look, we got all these problems with fights. Mm. And we got, we, got, we got community members who want to be in, in, involved. Mm. So what they did, they replaced the school resource officers with grandmothers, right? So it was, it was an ingenious thing, right? So they just said, all right, well, look, here are the, folk, here are the people who are in the spaces with young folks the most. Why not bring them in the schoolhouse? Mm. So what happens in the schoolhouse, right? They're, <laughs> their, their discipline goes through the floor, their attendance goes up, and then people started talking to students about, okay, what's happening here? And, it was, and young folks were just like, look, I am not trying to fight in front of my grandmother. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and they're, they're just like, look, we, we, we just don't, we, we, that, that's not what we're on. And mm. if we're gonna be respectful, like having them here makes us understand that this place is no longer a place to dehumanize us, but a place that is actually trying 
to demonstrate his commitment to us. So, mm. I mean, and that was a very explicit example. Second is actually in a small town outside of Boston, mm. uh, Brockton, Massachusetts, where they actually got their school resource officers out mm. and they actually detracted their uh, classes. So no more, no more honors, no more AP. And they actually shifted the resources back into the school away from those honors and AP classes. And what actually happened was it lifted the educational levels of all the students, right? Not just test scores, but actually them coming to school and seeing school, that, that particular school, as an efficacious space, right? As a space where they were loved and that was committed to learning. And this was done mm. in a three-year period, right? This was one of the quote-unquote lowest performing schools in all of Massachusetts, mm. right? In a three-year period with the exact same students, it becomes this exemplary example of what education is, right? So I think a lot of times when people think about defunding police, getting police out of schools, everybody thinks about this as being apocalyptic, mm -hmm, right? In terms mm -hmm. of just kind of ending all things. Mm. And what it's really saying is we have precedent and examples of what right. works, but we're unwilling to engage. I mean, a third example that, I, that we very rarely talk about, so 21 years ago, mm. there was a mass shooting at a place in Colorado called Columbine High School. Mm. So the, uh, and what happened in Columbine High School, you know, 14 people killed, over 30 uh, injured, you know, it was a, a, a massive um, uh, display of brute force bodies to uh, disaffected students. Mm. And what Columbine High School did, and it's interesting, and we very rarely talk about it, to this day, mm. Columbine High School doesn't have metal detectors. Oh. But what they do have is a team of over 40 counselors. Right. Right? So this thing around really thinking about, and I think this goes back to, in a broader society, who's valued and who's being deemed disposable. Right, right. Right. So if you if you have folks who are valued, there's certain things that you do and that they've already done. So if we go to these rich, wealthy suburban schools mm. that are often the sites of school shootings, mm. they still don't have security. They still don't have security there, right? Of course not, yeah. But when you go to neighborhoods in urban centers, we got tons of security with no school shootings. Exactly. Right? So this, no, so of this, course. So this thing around really kind of putting our our work in focus to mm. say there's possibilities around doing these things. Mm. You just have to have the wherewithal to do them and to plan mm -hmm. when we're doing them, right? Because a lot of times people just think about this as just kind of cutting one thing off and then just kind of having things run as usual. No, you have to, you actually have to plan for a different set of work, right? This isn't just kind of some haphazard anarchist strategy. Right. What it really is is saying, look, this thing hasn't worked and we're not trying to reform what hasn't worked. Right. We need something entirely different. So, so do you see that possibility in Chicago where you're based? I mean, we've seen the complete public gutting um, and austerity measures in education. Um, and you've, you've documented that you know, so well in your, in your last book. 
I'm just wondering, do you, in this moment, even though it's a, it's a small window, can you see certain possibilities um, being, you know, um, enacted in this moment in Chicago? Yeah, I think there's the moment for a couple of things that happen. And right now, for the next couple of days, there's these huge public demonstrations around uh, defunding the police and getting police out of Chicago public schools. Right. I think the thing that this window provides us is this opportunity to say, well, look, these things have never worked, right? Police don't make students feel safe, mm-hmm. period, right? We know that, right? There's no data that says that, that policing makes young people feel safe. The other part of it that I think that's important is now we're really talking about the reappropriation of resources, Mm -hmm, right? And I think mm -hmm. this this becomes important because if we talk about the reappropriation of resources, we also have to talk about where those resources go. And I think this is an important moment because now is the opportunity so we understand, you know, dehumanization, white supremacy is on full front, front stage. Now it's, it's important to say, okay, if we're trying to address this, mm. what does it mean to take folks who are on the margins and bring their issues and concerns to the center, right? right? And I think that's a, that's a critically important juncture, right? Because we have folks in Chicago who have been marginalized for 70 years, right? In terms of how, what their schooling experiences have been, relationships with police, access to housing, access to healthcare, employment, uh, healthy food options. So this type of thing around really shifting the focus. And I think that becomes important because to your point, with austerity budgets, now multinational corporations are leaned on to now support the moves and the issues and concerns of the state and through what is now referred to as public-private partnerships. But I think those things are, we're seeing the fallibility of capitalism and we're also seeing the very tepid nature of capitalism and its um, very weak point around depending on growth, marginalization, and alienation, right? So this, thing, so this thing around really thinking about this particular moment and how weak capitalism is now allows us to rethink, well, how do we use this moment not only in combating white supremacy, but also addressing the three pandemics of COVID and capitalism? And now one of the ways to do that is, bring, is to bring the issues of those on the margins right to the center, right? Because this is, I feel like this is the segue to begin to talk about housing, right? right in right. terms of, of rent strikes, in terms of, you know, equitable uh, mortgages, even, even at having mortgages, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. This, this thing around really rethinking housing. And I think school is that opportunity to do that in terms of rethinking what we've uh, currently done. Because again, reform is unacceptable, right? It has not worked. 
Thank you. Um, so actually, this helps me move to because you've, you've already addressed housing a little bit. Um, I was going to ask you a question about housing, but I think you've, you've addressed in, in, in what ways we can, uh, we need to also move into really thinking about that. And I mean, just at the top of my head, you know, watching the protection um, of private property and property by police and um, the National Guard is so remarkable in terms of when you compare that to affordable housing, right? That mm -hmm. you, can, you can gut a system and completely make these buildings, you know, um, I think about the London example when Glen, mm -hmm. Glenfield Towers fell, right? Or, or was burned down mm -hmm. um, in that there's such disinvestment that that where immigrants and migrants and, and racialized people live, black people live, you know, um, there's such a disinvestment that that can burn down to the ground and no one cares, mm -hmm. actually it becomes a, a, a segue to gentrification, right? Because mm -hmm. then that's the, these are the properties that then developers refurbish, recreate, and then sell on the market versus the kind of property um, that you, that you got to protect and save. And so this mm -hmm. moment also brings to the light for me around the question of housing, you know, when I think about Minneapolis and what's burned down in the, in those areas, mm -hmm. um, what developers and what, um, uh, what real estate moguls are going to do in this moment around trying to, you know, rebuild as we saw post hurricane Katrina, you know, so mm -hmm. I'm just, as you kind of mentioned that my brain just kind of went there. Um, in terms of the implications of this, this could have for housing. But I want to move to just, you know, kind of thinking about pedagogy now. Um, mm -hmm. You're considered uh, an incredibly powerful, you know, and an inspiring educator. And I'm just wondering, you know, what pedagogies do you think you might use in this moment um, or what comes September and onwards to mm -hmm. be teaching about these uprisings, both in the classroom and beyond? Right. I mean, I think around... When we think about pedagogy or the practice of doing something or the mm. science of doing something, I think about it in terms of how do we understand resistance, indignation, mm -hmm. and the idea of abolition, mm -hmm. right? So this idea of what are we resisting? Mm -hmm. How are we resisting it in ways that are indignant, right? In terms of like, we, it, is a non, it is a complete refusal. Mm -hmm. And then how are we thinking about abolition? So I'm trying to center those in my conversations with my students, with high schoolers, with uh, community organizations and families to really kind of ask this question. And at the same time, as a pedagogue, I'm always asking myself this question because it's not just this thing to be put out there to be grappled with, mm -hmm. but because I'm also grappling with it myself. Right. right? So... I think for me, one of the pedagogical centers is at this moment is what does it mean to live in a world that constantly reminds you of how much it hates you? Mm. Right. So when we start to talk about anti-blackness, right, what, what does it mean to live under those conditions? Right. Mm -hmm. When your body is understood as the naturalized site of gratuitous punishment. Right. right. So what does it mean to exist under those conditions? And then how do we claim black love and black joy mm -hmm. in a larger world mm -hmm. that hates us mm -hmm. right so i mean this this thing around really pushing it and not questions that i'm just kind of putting out there no. to be philosophical but to really say that because i'm trying to figure that out right i'm trying to figure out the ways to demand joy mm -hmm. the over the spaces that bring me and those like me 
pain, suffering, and degradation, right? So I think those, that work now, so it, it, allow, it, it pushes us to do a couple of things, I think, pedagogically. One is to look deep into history, mm-hmm. right? Because these moments, you know, we're starting to see this kind of cycle of history or broader arc of history, right? It's mm-hmm. not so much that hip- history repeats itself, but history provides us lessons that are similar that mm. we now have to build on if we're talking about building a new world, mm. right? And I think that's, for me, those are, I, I wanna dig deep into history and I also wanna take examples of things historically and contemporarily that allow us to reimagine worlds, right? To really, to, to actually build, so not, not utopic models, but to literally say, if this thing is unacceptable, mm-hmm. then what are we willing to do, mm-hmm. right? And that thing around, because, I, and I think, you know, the Afro-pessimists who I argue with a lot with, <laughs> they, they, they have a point, right? Mm. They have a point in terms of, we need to sit in an understanding of how serious this is, mm-hmm. right? Because I mean, we're talking about a world that hates you, Mm. right that has rationalized mm. your death mm. before your humanity right right so now if we know that to be real and true then what are we willing to do to build right so that's why school abolition prison abolition becomes important to me because i'm now asking these questions what are we willing to build who am i willing to build it with mm-hmm. what is it connected to mm-hmm. so i think pedagogically, uh, this idea of resistance, indignation, and abolition now allow me to push myself, not only in my thinking, but also in my doing, um, in terms of who I'm joining forces with to do this work. What's exciting about that is that I think what I appreciate about this, and and similarly, in terms of thinking about, you know, Afro-pessimism, is that in your sort of vision, there is... uh, the resistance, the agency, and the joy, right? Um, mm-hmm. And the and and what Robin Kelly calls freedom dreams. Like there's an imaginary of a future, um, and and so that's really exciting. And I and I look forward to hearing uh, down the line about you know how how you did that work um, or how you know we're doing that work in in our different in our different spaces. I want to end with one question, just asking you, what does this political moment personally mean to you? Um, and are you hopeful about uh, this moment? And what is, yeah, what, what hopes come out of this moment for you since we're on joy and futures? Right, I think I'm skeptically hopeful, mm-hmm. but I also know that the plan emerges when we commit to be together, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's, that's where my hope lies, but we have to do that work, mm-hmm. right? Because I think, you know, the most, you know, organizers often talk about the most important time is the time between physical protests, right. right? So now what are we actually doing? So now whatever is quote unquote one, mm-hmm. you have to work even harder to maintain and build something new, right? So um, if, the, if the goal is to build something new, we have to be clear around the work it takes to do that, mm-hmm. right? And I think right now there is this hopefully again, to your point, a very narrow window mm-hmm. for this thing to happen. So we have to push hard, but at the same time, it's even harder to maintain and keep our work going. So for those reasons, it becomes all the more important 
that we find ways to replenish ourselves to actually do this work. I mean, that, and, and to me, that, I think that's the biggest lesson because if we don't have ways to replenish ourselves, then we burn out and we know what that means for black and brown folks, right? That, that means premature death. So what we have to do is really rise against that and say, okay, replenishing ourselves is reflective of our commitment to struggle, right? And I think that when, we, when we're able to do that, our work becomes clearer mm. and then the allegiances we make with people are more grounded. Completely. Well, that, that I ditto, ditto on, on all of that, because, you know, I think a lot about this through this lens of also, you know, radical practices of replenishing or radical practices of care or radical practices of healing and collective processes in which uh, we do it together. So it doesn't become, you know, individualized and, uh, and we do it in ways that bring us back to do that work in the in-between between the protests and um, the direct action, you know, so I, I 100% agree with you. These are questions I often think about because obviously for us, this is not a short-term game. Many right. of us have been doing this work for decades and, mm-hmm. um, and to be in it for the long term, uh, we need to be sustainable and, and, mm-hmm. and um, we need to you know, continue to find inspiration um, even in the failures uh, to, keep, to keep going. So I just want to thank you so much uh, you know, for, for your time, for being on uh, the Liberation Pedagogy podcast, and most importantly, for uh, this wonderful, wonderful conversation. Um, I'm always learning from you, and it's just such an honor. Thank you. No, truly appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Liberation Pedagogy podcast. If you'd like to learn more and engage with us, please check us out at www.liberationpedagogyproject.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.